can turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 is where we'll be getting our passage this morning. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote that the whole purpose of doctrine is not merely to give us intellectual understanding or satisfaction, but to establish us, to make us firm, to make us solid Christians, to make us unmovable, to give us such a foundation that nothing can shake us. As we've been going through the book of Colossians, uh, hopefully it's become apparent to you that this is very much a preventative letter. That Paul, through his writing, is seeking to anticipate and, and, and establish the Colossians in proper doctrine of who Christ is so they can stand firm against the false teaching that was seeking, trying to infiltrate into their midst. And today in our passage, we're going to see the practical outgrowth of a solid faith, of sound doctrine. That sound doctrine, if understood and applied, produces a firm faith and a fruitful life. In other words, if Christ is over everything, how will that impact my walk? We're going to be reading together in Colossians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6, we'll read down through verse 15. As ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. We pray together. Lord, we pray that you would guide us through this incredibly rich and important passage as we Meditate on your gospel and everything that Christ did for us. Help us see the connection, Lord, between what we believe and how we walk, that we would have a firm faith in Christ. Guide us as we look in your word this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As I read these verses, I consider the complete sufficiency of what Christ has done for us. I hope you picked that up as we were reading that passage And it brings to mind the words of the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. We read in the first stanza of this beloved hymn, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can be said than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. I love that phrase in there. It says, what more can he say? than to you he has said. As we look at the passage of Scripture this morning and we see everything that is included in the gospel, 
I hope your heart resounds with that same theme. What more can he say? What more can he do? Are you firm in your faith? Are you so convinced in the truth of the gospel that Christ is over everything, that it's making a difference in your life? Today, we're going to consider what a firm faith looks like in our passage today. As we consider these verses, Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 15, first thing we notice is that a firm faith produces a faithful walk. Paul's rejoicing in the firmness of their faith, which leads them to an exhortation. In fact, one of the first exhortations of the whole book, that a convinced mind should produce a confident walk, a change of behavior that flows from a belief in Christ, the Lord. In short, Paul's exhorting the Christians in Colossae that if Christ is over everything, if you truly believe that, then live like that. In other words, is your lifestyle consistent with your belief? When we say Christ is over everything, almost everyone in this room, I'm sure, would say, amen, praise the Lord, that is true. But, but will it, does it translate into your life? Do you live as if Christ is over everything? And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. He says, if you have received, just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This reflects the prayer that he offers at the beginning of the letter when he asks that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. This is very much an application of the previous verses. If you look back in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, having rejoiced in the firmness of your faith, I'm calling you to live a life consistent with your faith. I'm seeing your firmness of faith, so therefore walk in Christ. We see in these verses 6, 7, and 8, first of all, the standard of a faithful walk. You see these in two phrases here. Two phrases communicate the standard in which we are to walk in Christ. We see in verse 6, to, to walk in Him just as you have received Him. And number two, walk in Him just as you were taught. So what's Paul doing in both of these phrases? He's pointing back to the content of the message that they have received. And what is that message? Namely, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And in that short title, the Lord, is wrapped up all of the doctrine of Christ's preeminence that we see in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. That it speaks not only of his work of salvation, but his rule and authority as the preeminent one, God in flesh. In fact, this is the only place where Paul uses all three titles of Christ in this order. Christ, Jesus, the Lord. And with this title, he points to that theological foundation of his letter, and it's the title of our, of our series, Christ is Over Everything. And so in these verses, in one sense, he's calling them to move forward, to walk. In another sense, he's telling them to stay put, to, to, to don't move on from his lordship, don't add to it, don't modify it. Walk in him the same way that you have received him, just as you were taught. He's telling them, you were taught in this truth, now walk in this truth. We could say that if Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, which is that, that glowing hymn about the preeminence of Christ, if that serves as the doctrinal foundation of the book, you might say that Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, serves as the thesis for the whole book. That because Paul is not concerned that they believe the right things, but that their belief would translate into right action. You've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him just as you have received him. As we continue in our series, Colossians 3 will be the practical outgrowth of that. 
we see the standard of faithful walk, and really the standard is what you've already received. You already have it, and we've looked at that truth. You have been revealed, it's been revealed to you the mystery of Christ. You have the, all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Walk in that reality. And as he continues, we see the stability of a faithful walk. He layers on description after description to describe the means by which we walk faithfully. Do you want to live a faithful life in Christ? Here's how. Be rooted, be built up, and be established. Just like Jesus said in John 15, we cannot bear fruit unless we abide in the vine. And he uses agricultural analogy, he uses architectural analogy to make this clear point. Just like the tree of Psalm 1 planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, a faithful walk comes from being deeply rooted in the truth of Christ. You might say he's calling us to to not leave our roots, to stay firmly rooted in what we believe. That a faithful walk comes from being built up in him with Christ being the chief cornerstone. And the third description, I believe, points to the effect of being rooted and built up in Christ, that you are established, you are confirmed, you are strengthened. Wouldn't you like that to be the description of your faith? Have you ever felt unestablished, unstable, unsure? Is it possible for you in your life, in your Christian walk, to be established? No matter what trials come your way, is that possible? With these two points, the standard and the stability taken together, I think it calls us to, calling us to walk just as we've received Christ and calling us to be deeply rooted in the truth that we've received repeats this important theme we've seen time and time again, that you have what you need to live a life of firm faith. There's no hidden truth that you're missing. There's no secret ingredient you need to discover to obey Christ with your life. If you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, the one who is over all, if you've embraced the mystery revealed to you that Christ in, is in you, the hope of glory, then all you have have to do is walk in that reality. And it is your firm conviction and assurance of the gospel that will keep you rooted and grounded in faith. And as he continues to describe this walk, this faithful walk, we see the overflow of a faithful walk. Where do we see this? Well, there's one more descriptive word for the faithful walk. Abounding in thanksgiving. The first three descriptions, rooted, built up, builded and, built up, and established, are in the passive. They're all works of God on your heart, but this fourth one is active, that we abound with thanksgiving. In other words, this is the natural response of the heart that is rooted and grounded. It is the spirit of joyful contentment that rejoices in the absolutely stunning message of Jesus. Why does Paul add this element of thanksgiving? Well, if you read Paul's letters, he often incorporates thanksgiving as a counteroffensive to things like lust or impure speech. In our context, I believe it's a counteroffensive to false teaching. The Colossians church is facing this false teaching that's, that's permeating, infiltrating their church. And a heart abounding in thanksgiving is a heart that is full, content. In other words, the greatest protection against false teaching is a thankful heart, one that says, no thank you, I have Jesus. And that's why we fall prey to false teaching so often when we divert off the path because we're not abounding in thanksgiving, we're not so rooted and grounded and built up in the truth that it overflows in a thanksgiving and full heart that gives us the resistance, the firmness against false teaching. So Paul's telling us right at at this beginning exhortation, this thesis of the book that a firm faith produces a faithful walk. 
And this exhortation is one that he will continue to develop and expound throughout this chapter and into the next. But here at the beginning of our passage, let's make sure that we apply this simple truth to our hearts. Perhaps you haven't known Jesus very long. You believe the gospel. That while you could do nothing to save yourself, Jesus entered our world to save you. And maybe you're sitting here and you've, you've trusted in that finished work. And perhaps the extent of your scriptural knowledge doesn't go beyond the title of the series. Christ is over everything. All I know is that Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is Lord. I owe him everything. I just want to encourage you today, if that's the extent of your knowledge, you can walk in that. You can have a faithful walk. Let the reality of what you believe fuel your every step as you're abounding in thanksgiving. Maybe you've known Jesus for a long time. Have you lost sight of what you first believed? Have you, have you left your roots? Have you left your foundation? Has the abundance of thanksgiving that you once enjoyed faded? If you've been saved for a long time, perhaps you can look back at a time on your life, in your life when you did have that abounding in thanksgiving and you were deeply rooted in Christ, but perhaps now you seem more like you're drifting. You're just kind of cruising through life. If so, you're probably not living a faithful life, are you? You're not abiding in the vine. Perhaps you need to get back to your roots to return to the simple truth that you learned in the beginning, that Jesus is over everything. We may ask, what if I don't? What if I don't walk in Christ? Can I just continue down the current path I'm on? So far, I seem to be doing just fine, right? Jesus is important to me, but, but frankly, I've found that living by my own rules rather than the Christ's authority has had little negative impact on my life. So is there a danger I should be aware of? Am I vulnerable? Well, verse 8 answers yes. Yes, you are in danger because we live in a world that is filled with empty and deceitful philosophy designed by both men and demons that are meant to shipwreck you and take you captive. And in verse 8, we see another command from Paul. He says, walk in Christ. In verse 8 is another command. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And so secondly, a firm faith discerns the danger. And here he's, he's starting to get into the very core of his, his letter. He's starting at this point to start to specify the nature, the, the teaching of the heresies that was surrounding them. And he warns them. He doesn't want them to approach this casually. That if you are firm in your faith, you will look around you and see the danger, see the deception, and avoid it. As we continue in our passage, we see the danger defined. He tells the believers to watch out, to beware, lest anyone spoil you, it says in the King James. Now, spoil isn't referring to a grandma giving you too many sweets or, or meat going bad, all right? This is a unique Greek word found only here in Scripture, which communicates someone taking someone as spoils of war. More clearly translated in other English versions as take you captive. And so this is the warning here. Beware that no one takes you captive. This is to be carried away as a slave by fundamentally anti-Christian ways of thinking. And this, this vivid word is, is not hard for us to grasp. 
It's not hard for us to imagine how someone might be completely enslaved or held captive to a certain way of thinking, a godless philosophy that they're stuck in it, they're entrapped in it. It fundamentally controls their whole world. Have you met someone like that? You've had the experience of knowing someone who is so stuck, so bound in a particular way of thinking that you wonder if they can ever break free from it. There's a reason why Paul calls these heresies, these false teachings, as as deceptive philosophies that can take you captive. Fine-sounding arguments that can enslave you. Paul describes the type of philosophy that can enslave our minds. You see it there in verse 8. Philosophy and empty deceit. However, the, the Greek construction of these words might be indicating that the words empty and deceit are actually both modifying philosophy. And so it might be translated empty and deceitful philosophy. Some of your English versions might render it in that way. And if this is what Paul is saying, that he's not warning about philosophy as a whole, as if if the study of knowledge should be avoided, that we are to reject that discipline altogether, but rather it is specifically the empty and deceitful philosophies that enslave us. Consider this, how Jesus is described. Philosophies he describes as empty and deceitful. Do you remember how Jesus was described in chapter 1? For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. We see in our passage in the very next verse, verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus is the fullness of God. He is the truth. In other words, he's the exact opposite of these empty and deceitful philosophies. It's only when we are filled with Christ that we can discern the emptiness of vain philosophies that we see past their fine-sounding arguments to realize there's no Jesus there. There's no fullness. There's no truth. So Christian, if you are not walking in Christ, if you're not rooted and established in Him, you are in danger of being enslaved by ways of thinking that are completely empty and completely deceitful. Philosophies that promise great reward, but have nothing to show for it. And so we're warned in this passage, see to it, watch out, that you are not taken captive by these empty and these deceitful philosophies. But what about these philosophies make them empty and deceitful? Paul exposes the danger here as we see three parallel phrases that all begin with after or according to. That these phrases describe what the empty and deceitful philosophies depend on. How do you know if a philosophy of a way of thinking is empty or deceitful? Look at what they depend on. Look at what their foundation is. It's not that these philosophies have seemingly helpful formulas or ideologies or ethical expectations. Most worldviews, most philosophies will have those things. Many of which might be helpful on the surface. But an empty philosophy is effective, is, that is effective is one that actually has the appearance of wisdom. We'll see that later in chapter 2. What makes a philosophy, a wrong way of thinking, attractive? Well, it has the appearance of wisdom. It's a fine-sounding argument. Rather, the problem is what they're built on. What do they depend on? What is their foundation? Do you want to know if a philosophy is empty and deceitful? Then check and see what they're standing on. And Paul gives us three things to look at. 
says these empty and deceitful philosophies are empty because they are according to human tradition. Empty and deceitful philosophies depend on human tradition. They are derived from the mind of man. Jesus condemned the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 3 when he asked, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? The Pharisees were teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. In fact, in that same passage, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13, where God rebukes Israel because humans, human rules direct their worship of me, God says. Human rules direct their worship. That even their worship of God depended on human rules. What was the foundation even in their worship? It was human tradition. If the foundation of our life is man-made rules or tradition, what is it? Empty and deceitful and capable of taking you captive. And so God says, Beware philosophies that are according to human tradition. We all have our own traditions. We all have our own way of thinking. And he's not, he's not condemning tradition as a concept. He's condemning tradition as a foundation, as a starting point. He goes on to say, according to the spiritual forces of this world. This next phrase is, is somewhat hard to, to interpret, but I believe it exposes why the human traditions of this world are empty and deceitful. That which is derived from the mind of man is in actuality according to the, the spiritual forces of this world. The Greek here literally says the elements of this world, and it could mean one of three things, given the context and broader use of the word. It can mean either the, material, the elementary materials of this world, Think earth, wind, fire, water. Number two, it could mean elementary principles of this world, earthly principles of ethics or conduct. Or number three, it could mean elementary spirits of this world, spiritual forces at work. All three are viable options, and the best interpretation depends on the context. And the best interpretation, I believe, is elementary spirits or spiritual forces. And this is in light of the fact that angelic powers are referenced all throughout this book. Chapter 1, verse 13, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 10, verse 15, and verse 18. Which also point to the fact that angelic forces were part of the focus and component of the false teaching present in Colossae. We'll see this in the next passage, that part of this false teaching was pointing to the power and even worship of angelic forces. Paul will later contrast these same spiritual forces behind the empty philosophy, declaring that Christ, through his death, has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. I believe the point Paul is making here is that the spiritual forces of this world is at work because spiritual warfare is real. And these spiritual forces use even human tradition of man as a weapon to take us captive and enslave us to empty and deceitful philosophies. Listen to this connection that we see in James chapter 3, verse 14, where James is describing wisdom from the world, earthly wisdom, and how is earthly wisdom from the mind of man described? It's described as earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Listen to the connection between human, and tr human tradition and spiritual forces in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So what do we see in this passage? You see false teachers promoting human tradition and man-made rules, forbidding marriage, abstaining from certain foods. But what are these human traditions exposed to actually be? The tools of deceitful spirits and their philosophy being the teachings of demons. Sometimes we think, well, it's just human tradition. It's harmless. It's not. It's very, it's, 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 decept, it's deceptive. It's dangerous that Satan uses the philosophy of man to take people captive, to enslave the mind. And so Paul says, watch out. See to it. This is dangerous stuff. In the third measurement, according to human tradition, according to the spiritual forces of this world, and thirdly, and the most important one, not according to Christ. This is the one that makes the first two criteria empty. That empty and deceitful philosophies do not depend on Christ to work. If you're faced with a philosophy, if you're looking at a way of thinking, and you're weighing a way to approach your relationship with God, trying to decide if it's worth your consideration. I don't care if it's a, if it's a self-help book, whether it's an inspirational speaker. What, how do you analyze whether or not it's a vain and empty philosophy? You can do it by asking a simple question. Does it depend on Jesus to work? If the answer is no, trash it. It's empty and deceitful. Ask another way. If I take Jesus out, does it still work if Jesus is removed? If the answer is yes, trash it. That way of thinking will take you captive. And again, we're not talking about philosophy as a whole. We're not talking about different, different disciplines of thinking. We're talking about ways of thinking packaged in such a way to help you grow in your walk with Christ or a way of living that makes sense of life. If it does not depend on Jesus to work, it is, in its essence, false, deceptive, and dangerous. Paul will get more specific later in the chapter, revealing what kind of philosophies don't depend on Jesus to work. So we'll save the specifics for next time. It's important to note that there are many Christian philosophies that fall into this category. Ways of approaching scripture and ways of the Christian life that don't even depend on Jesus to work. That you can take Jesus out and you lose nothing. Lip service is paid to Jesus. The, the, the obligatory, well, all of this is possible because Jesus died for us and that's about as far as it goes. But if it does not depend on Jesus, then it might be simply human tradition that has been Christianized and repackaged to include Jesus, but it doesn't depend on him at all. There's a strange habit that we have in Christianity that we look at whatever philosophy is being presented by the world and we think, how can I Christianize that? How can I make that something that Jesus actually said? 
And then we go scouring through scripture to find proof texts and verses that, that we can twist to make it sound like Jesus is espousing this vain and empty philosophy. When in reality, it's empty and deceitful. Why is this such an important measurement, not according to Christ? Why should my way of life depend on Christ to work? Well, look in verse 9 of our passage. For, because, not according to Christ, because in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul uses two redundant words, whole and fullness. If something is full, why do you have to add that extra word there? He's doing it to make a point. Jesus is God. He is the entire fullness of deity. Everything is created by him and for him, and he is sustaining all things. Christ is over everything. And so here's the point. If your way of life does not depend on Jesus to work, you're saying it's the one thing in the universe that's outside of Christ's control. So this presents us with a question. If what worldview completely and totally depends on Jesus to work? We've seen the negative. These empty, deceitful philosophies don't depend on Jesus to work. What way of thinking, what belief system totally depends on Jesus to work? Well, I hope the obvious answer to you is Christianity. But in what way does Jesus make it work? Can we get specific? Can we prove how everything in our faith depends completely and totally on Jesus? And that's what the rest of our passage explains for us. Thirdly, a firm faith rejoices in Christ's finished work. Verses 10 through 15 explains exactly how Jesus makes the Christian life work. What is it about him that roots and grounds us in the faith so that we can walk worthy of the Lord, abounding in thanksgiving? Before we get into the specifics, let's consider quickly what makes worldly, empty, and anti-Christian philosophy so appealing. Well, the allurement of empty philosophy is found in what it promises to do for you. That there's a scratch, it can itch, there's a deficiency that it can fix, or it's a burden that it can lift. This is why they are plausible. They are enticing. If it doesn't promise to scratch that itch, fix that problem, or lift that burden, you wouldn't even be tempted to be deceived by it at all. And they offer to do it without needing Jesus at all. But in ten, verses 10 through 15 of our passage, it lays out for us a philosophy, a true philosophy, a full philosophy that offers far more than anything this world can offer, and all of it needs Jesus to work. As we look at these passages, we discover in verse 10 that Jesus has done far more than just scratch an itch. If you view Jesus Christ as just scratching an itch, that, that, that little desire that you have, you are, you are underestimating him fully because in verse 10, we see that Jesus satisfies the empty soul. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the whole fullness of deity. He is God in flesh. And because of Jesus, we have been filled in him. We see this all throughout scripture. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 that Paul desires to make 
to know, that we should know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. In John chapter 1, verse 16, we read, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. False teachers were offering a deeper fullness beyond what they had in Christ. They were, they were offering them to move on to what they framed as real spiritual fulfillment. And they present an itch that you didn't even know you had so that they can offer to scratch it. And usually that itch is found right around your ears. And having itching ears, you accumulate for yourself teachers to suit your own, what? Passions, desires. That the satisfaction, but the, the scripture tells us that satisfaction of your soul depends on Jesus. Anything else this world offers is simply a scratch it's offering to itch. And the one who is the comprehensive revelation of God has filled us with his grace. And we have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus offers far more than to scratch an itch. He satisfies the empty soul. Empty philosophy promises to fix a deficiency. There's something off. There's a deficiency. Our worldview, our philosophy offers to fix it. Jesus does far more than that. He doesn't come to fix a deficiency. Jesus comes to remake the sinful soul. Empty philosophies try to fix what they see as broken in our world to present themselves as the solution to what is wrong. But when we consider what is wrong in our world, we realize that things are so fundamentally broken, so irreparably damaged, that it's going to take a lot more than a quick fix. In fact, if you're honest with yourself, you'd admit things are so broken, it's reached your own soul. We are broken. We are damaged. There is a deficiency at our very core. And empty philosophies try to fix what is broken. But Jesus enters and completely remakes it. In, Ephesians, in verses 11 through 12, Paul uses the illustration of circumcision to make this point. And not to get overly detailed, but circumcision involves a removal of flesh. And in the Jewish system, it is a sign that you belong to the people of God. But here, Paul is talking about circumcision made without hands. A spiritual circumcision in which the body of our flesh is put off. What is broken and cursed is removed. How is that possible? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So here's how Jesus remakes a sinful soul. Jesus died on the cross, taking our punishment on himself so that through our faith in him, we might put off our old life, our brokenness and our sins. Scripture describes it as our old self being crucified with Christ and our new self being raised with him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Any other philosophy and worldview offering the solution to life is simply going to try to give a facelift to what they see is the problem. But only Christianity displays and shows to us it's so fundamentally broken, it must be remade. It must be born again. And only Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who enters our world, takes our punishment for us, dies in our place, is raised to life and victory, can offer that redemption. No amount of self-esteem or self-love can shake the feeling, something is wrong. Something is wrong in my soul. And this world offers band-aids and self-help, but Jesus offers transformation, rebirth. And he died and rose again so that you might die and rise again with him. Look in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. This is a worldview that depends on Jesus to work. Can you see how if you remove Jesus from the, from the equation, it completely falls apart? Because it's all the finished work of Christ. You remove Christ, you removed his finished work, and if you remove his finished work, you have no Christianity. This is only something Jesus can do. If your worldview works without Jesus, then there remains in your life a serious deficiency that only Jesus can restore and remake. We said that empty philosophy promises to scratch an itch, promises to fix a deficiency, but empty philosophy also promises to lift a burden. But as we see in verses 13 through 15, Jesus offers to forgive the guilty soul. You know, our society is plagued with guilt. A nagging and pervasive thought that something has been done and someone is accountable. There is an innate desire for justice, for fairness, amid a world of guilt. And again, if we're honest, that burden of guilt falls squarely on each of our own shoulders. I am guilty. I am accountable. And some philosophies might deal with this burden by trying to place the guilt on someone else or perhaps convince you that the guilt you're feeling is imagined. It's not there. But you know it's there. And you know, although you might not admit it, that you have a guilt before God, that you have fallen short, that you have broken his holy law. And so Jesus enters, and by his grace... He offers not to divert your guilt or deny your guilt's existence, but to completely do away with guilt and not have you pay for it. You say, how is that possible? How can someone who is truly and fully guilty have that guilt removed without having to pay for it yourself? Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 tells us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? How could Jesus do this? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is only one possible way that your guilt can be removed. If you have a guilty soul this morning, 
There's only one possible way that your guilt can be completely removed, and this passage tells us that Jesus cancels the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This word for record of debt is used in commerce in Greek times to describe an IOU. In this case, we can say that we have an IOU to God. We've fallen short. We have a record of debt, and the legal demands are standing against us, and there is no way to pay it back. There's no way to be cleansed of this guilt. And what do worldly empty philosophies do? Well, let me give you a series of steps that you can do to right your wrongs, to outweigh your bad works with your good works. None of those remove guilt. And so what do we see? Jesus takes it. He sets it aside and he removes our guilt by nailing that record of debt to his cross. He takes our IOU and having Jesus pay the bill through the shedding of his blood. Do you have the burden of guilt on your shoulders? Let me ask you, how are you dealing with that? For many of us, we deal with guilt by punishing ourselves. We deal with guilt by blaming others. Or perhaps we deal with guilt by simply denying its existence. What philosophies have you been enslaved by that have promised to be the solution to that guilt? Please see today that only Jesus can completely remove, forgive, and do away with your guilt by nailing it to his cross. It is only his work that can accomplish it. Any other philosophy can just simply divert the guilt or deny it. An empty philosophy can scratch an itch, fix a problem, or lift a burden, but Jesus isn't needed for that. If you're looking for a philosophy that offers complete fulfillment and satisfaction, an eternal and fundamental solution to our own deficiency, and a forgiveness that completely removes the guilt on our shoulders, then you need Jesus, because you cannot get those things without him. It doesn't work. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the end of our passage describes his total victory that on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. So why would we be enslaved by the very spirits who have been conquered by Jesus Christ? Are you firm in your faith this morning? you can answer that question by answering three more. Number one, are you walking faithfully in line with what you believe? Are you rooted and built up and established in what you have received? Number two, are you discerning the danger of empty philosophy? Or are you spiritually gullible? Where you eat up whatever you think just sounds good and spiritual and is scratching that itch or lifting that burden or fixing that deficiency that you've been looking for? Or do you have the discernment through your faith to see if a philosophy is built on human tradition, on the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ? And number three, are you so convinced of Christ's finished work that you realize you don't need anything else? That if I take Jesus out of my faith, I have nothing. But in Jesus, I have full satisfaction. I have a reborn spirit, and I have the complete removal of, of my guilt through the forgiveness of my sins. We have a firm foundation. 
that song, that well-loved hymn, How Firm a Foundation, the last verse says this, that the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Is that your testimony? Are you walking in Christ who is over everything? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for being a sufficient Savior to us. We thank you, Lord, for entering our world by restoring and remaking us, by removing our guilt, by offering us total satisfaction, full and free. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be so gripped by that truth that we would not be deceived, we would not be held captive by the philosophies, the empty and deceitful philosophies that threaten our stability. Help us to, as we have received you, so walk in you. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for its power. Help us walk in it.